Hello, I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. We're back for our last podcast of the year, and we're talking about billionaires, because what else do you want to talk about at the holiday season except people who have pots of money? We talk about getting the billionaire right and examples of getting the billionaire oh so wrong. We also talk about some books we're looking forward to in 2013. The music that you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I'll have information at the end of the podcast about which track this is and where you can buy it. And our sponsor, Harlequin, would like to tell you some things, and here are those things. Discover the stories that caught the attention and hearts of the Karina Press team. You can check out the best of 2012 at ebooks.karinapress.com slash best of 2012. As usual, we will have an entry at both Dear Author and Smart Pitches Trashy Books that outlines all of the books that we're talking about, and this time also some shoes and handbags, because we mentioned those too. So I hope you're ready for book discussion. On with the podcast. This week, we're going to talk about getting the millionaires right and getting millionaires wrong, which seems to be something that more readers are paying attention to, especially as more and more authors self-publish books that feature millionaires that might otherwise have fit into the Harlequin Presents shelf. There's a lot of millionaires running around, and there's some places where they get it really, really wrong. And you had really good examples. Let's talk about who I do think gets it pretty right, and that is um, the Harlequin Presents authors. And it might just be because they have books of information that they hand out to all of those authors. But... Um, I remember reading an article a couple years ago um, during the kind of in, midst, in the midst of the recession that we have gone through and are now kind of limping out of. <laughs> limping slowly. And one of the articles was about the change of circumstances in these super wealthy people. And the article quoted... Um, a teenager from a wealthy family who had always flown charter uh, jets and he was now having to fly first class commercial and uh, he was aghast at the intermingling that he had to do with other people and the, the waiting in line and the security. You know, a very wealthy person is going to fly uh, private all the time. And so if you ever have your uh, person on a commercial jet, to me, that means you just, you know, that uh, that billionaire really isn't a billionaire. You're going to see Bill Gates on a commercial flight. No, you're never going to see Bill Gates on a commercial flight. And you're never going to see um, CEOs of companies on commercial flights unless there's one of three things happening. One, the CEO on the flight is the CEO of the airline, in which case he can fly whenever the hell he wants for free. So why wouldn't he fly his own planes? Two, many corporations have policies wherein executives cannot fly together. However, if it's the CEO who's on the commercial flight and everyone else is on the company jet, then either that CEO volunteered or he wanted to get away from somebody because usually it's a vice president or a director that gets shuttled onto the, onto the commercial flight. Or three, he used up all of his credits on the commercial or on the private jet. See, I used to have this very strict policy that I wouldn't talk about my jobs when I worked for other companies. And I used to work for a billionaire, like an actual billionaire, like so much wealth and resources that it was impossible to total up exactly how much there was. And after working in that company for about five years, I realized that there's 
only two things that incredible wealth brings you that's inaccessible to everyone else. And you hit on both of them. One, you never have to wait in line. And two, you don't have to talk to people if you don't want to. Those are the two things that wealth buys you that you cannot get if you're not extremely, extremely wealthy. Because if you think about it, if I really want a $25,000 purse from Prada or Hermes, I can figure out which credit card can hold that balance and then I'll be paying it off until I'm 104 years old. But I could probably do it because I have enough credit to combine to buy that one thing. There's a trapping of wealth that's external. You can save up and buy it. And that which is classified as wealth changes so frequently that there are only a few things that you can really say, okay, that's, that's something that rich people own. Because more often than not, you'll also find that same thing owned by someone who probably isn't classified as wealthy and is not on the Forbes 50 list or even on the Forbes 100 list. The other thing you, you can get with incredible wealth is that you never have to wait in line. You don't have to wait in line at customs. You don't have to wait in line at TSA. You get a, a private escort. Sometimes it's because of your personal security that you need to be um, kept away from other people for your own personal security. And sometimes it's just because you are so wealthy, you don't have to wait in line. That's really the number one thing that you can get from wealth, isolation and never having to wait, which I think that's a perfectly admirable goal for increasing your net worth. If you don't want to wait in line, start saving up and see if you can invent something that's going to make you billions of dollars and you never have to wait in line at TSA and take off your shoes. That's a great goal. Otherwise, everything else is an external trapping that can be achieved by someone else. So when you see authors writing incredibly wealthy people, it's not so much in the stuff that they own as in their attitude toward other people and their attitude toward their own time. If you're talking about a billionaire executive or a millionaire CEO or someone who has a great deal of money and a great deal of authority, one thing that they will always be cognizant of is how much their time is worth and they will dole it out in very small increments. And they're not going to waste time on things because they don't have that much time. And an hour of their time is simply worth just so much that they're not going to waste it. So you're not going to have people <laughs> – okay, I hate to keep picking on this book, but I have to bring this up. The fact that Christian Gray spent so much time emailing this girl in the books when he had a company to run was just ludicrous to me. Like what was he doing? Had he outsourced the entire company and he didn't need to do anything? That just, that just seems so completely unrealistic to me. And was also one of the things that most reminded me of Twilight because Bella became Edward's hobby and Anna sort of became Christian's hobby. And that's that's a lot of time that a guy in that position with that kind of wealth and that kind of access would not have to spend on sending random email to people. Well, what about the general who sent, what, 30,000 emails oh my to God, that socialite in Florida? My theory, and this is totally a theory, unsupported by anything. My theory is that he had another person writing with him that it wasn't just him, that he had, I don't know, some underling sworn to secrecy or somebody was working with him to send those emails or he was dictating them because that's – how the hell did you have that much time? Do you have insomnia? Do you not need sleep like a normal human? Maybe he's an alien. You think he's an alien? Maybe he's an alien. That would explain a lot. So what are the ways in which you've seen millionaires done well? Like what are some examples that you've seen? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I, read, I used to read, I haven't read a lot of Harlequin Presents recently, but recently um, the, I think the Harlequin Presents gets it fairly right 
you know, I think, um, you know, there's a big gap between the billionaire and the millionaire, too. You know, someone who has a few million dollars in the bank is going to have a different lifestyle than people who have a few billion dollars in the bank. But <clears throat> unfortunately, authors don't differentiate the, between the two. You know, some um, very wealthy people live very simplistic lives, but they have very rare uh, and unusual things because when you have all the money in the world uh, to buy things, uh, you want unique things, things that no one else can buy. So some people who are exceedingly wealthy who don't trade up, they don't get a larger house, they don't get a larger apartment, they don't they don't get larger things. Like I think Warren Buffett lives in the same house that he built that he bought in the 50s and he has a net worth that is probably more difficult to calculate than anyone's. And while he flies privately, as far as I know, and has incredible amounts of access to different people, he still lives in a small town in a small house that he's been living in for 60 years now. I think that's probably considered eccentric. It, uh, I, that would probably be true for most people. But, you know, um, I remember when I was reading... Uh, a Kristen Ashley book, and she had her very wealthy male character, a total badass in the um, self-described as a badass uh, in in the private investigation field, and he's driving a, I think it was a Cam- Camaro. And it- <laughs> unless unless it was a Camaro, like and hidden inside was like a a, a Bugatti. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think some of these authors, if you want to write some really rich characters, you know, take some time to, um, you know, pick up a Rob report. I was or, just going to say, all you need is like one issue of the Rob report and you will understand what wealth looks like. Right. <laughs> or Architectural Digest yes. or something. I don't um Or any you know, magazine it, that comes free with American Express Platinum or American Express Black. They get <laughs> you, you. There's a free magazine. The magazine's awesome. And there's stuff in there. There's no prices. You don't need to know how much it is. It, it's it's a lot. They're not going to print that many zeros. Just get your hands on one of those, and you will understand what wealth looks like. I I think um, uh, Lisa Claypass does a very good job. Yes. In, the, oh, yes. in her Texas series, the family is very wealthy. Um, he drives a Maybach, which is a you know very expensive luxury vehicle, and they have two corporate jets, and they're just. Uh, there's there an air of believability about the wealth of the family mm-hmm. and the characters that a lot of other people who are writing um, these wealthy characters don't get. And I also think that the wealthy characters that are written by a lot of authors have a very um, middle-class sensibility. What do you mean? And, well, <clears throat> it, just by the, you know, when I think when you have that kind of wealth again, you aren't bogged down by other things matter to you. Different things matter to you. Whereas you and I might be concerned about the cost of something um, or how that might affect our lives. That's obviously not a concern of theirs. And they're much more interested in uh, uniqueness I think that I, it's hard for me to describe it when you're reading. It's like, well, these people sound, um, there's just no differentiation. It's just like uh, it, if you pick a lawyer to be your um, protagonist and then nothing in the book it, 
talks about their position in in the law at all. Um, for example, or I was their reading, law school debt. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading uh, Julie James's Love Irresistibly that comes out next April, I think. And her character, uh, she has a an, a US, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney gen, uh, attorney uh, as the hero and a corporate uh, counsel. Um, in charge of acquisitions as the heroine, and they're both really busy. And it comes off, the the text of the book, the narrative, really plays up on their busyness. Mm -hmm. So that's very believable. Um, so, like, like when you talked about uh, Edward Gray having all this time to send all these emails, Christian again, Gray, not Edward Gray, oh, although Christian. that's a hysterical mistake. <laughs> They're one and the same. I know it's the same dude. Whatever. Anyway, so Christian Edward Gray, <laughs> Christian Edward Gray. Um, you know, since he's not in high school anymore. <laughs> yeah. Duh. You know, to like you said, to portray a true um, business person, they're very busy. Yes. And um, so when you have like a lawyer or something like that in the book, and he's not very busy. <laughs> yeah, that's something's wrong with that. No, if they're just living a life of leisure. I remember um, in um, Nora Roberts' old book. Oh, what's that book called? It has the title Carolina in it, I think. Carolina Moon? Yeah. Um, her hero is very kind of laid back mm -hmm. and seems to do nothing, but he's actually pretty well off in that he owns a number of businesses. And But, he, but his whole attitude is, I don't want to spend too much effort doing anything. Yes. And that worked for him. But that's not going to be the person, um, the same character if you have like a high-powered businessman yes. so I think what we're saying is if you're going to write a certain character make sure that that character's background is fully integrated into the story and not that you can lift you know billionaire out and put him in the blue blue, blue collar book and there'd be no change uh, in the dynamic of the story no and also that if you're going to write someone who is exceedingly wealthy and and so wealthy that it, it the amount of money isn't calculable, that changes the way a person thinks, the way a person acts, even the way they schedule their day and and the things that they think about. Like they're not ever going to worry about laundry. Laundry will be done. They're not ever going to worry about cleaning the house. It's going to be done probably by a team of people every day. There's going to be someone who cooks for them. There's going to be someone who drives them. There is going to be someone who does everything for them because their their job is to do a certain number of things in a day. Um, that that and everything else, for lack of a better word, everything else is sort of outsourced. And there's two results of that. I think one, you can have characters who run businesses, but the, the businesses kind of run on their own, and they have income or they have an extensive amount of money, and they're going to go do what they want to do, but they're also going to be very focused and driven and the you know the the whole the whole idea that you know with great power comes great responsibility with a lot of money comes a lot of responsibility not only are you responsible for maintaining it but you also have to field requests for a piece of it all the time like if it's like lottery winners when they win the lottery people come out of the woodwork asking for money and everyone everyone makes their case that that happens constantly and that's one of the reasons i think why um 
isolation and limited access is so important because otherwise people ask you for money all the friggin' time. The other thing I think that's important to portray accurately is what happens when you're the child of a billionaire. If you are inheriting wealth, what if what happens if you are the son or daughter of someone who has an epic ton of money and that person is the hero, the hero or the heroine? Because that's also a completely different life to grow up in. There's a, a documentary that came out, oh, I'm going to say like three years ago, although yesterday could have been last year for me. So I have a very bad concept of time. And I think it was called Rich Kids, but it was done by the heir to the Johnson & Johnson fortune. And he comes across as a whiny little puke. Like he is the Caillou of billionaires. He's so whiny. But he has access to all of these other billionaires' children. And he interviews them in the course of the – I think it's an hour or maybe an hour and a half. One of the people he interviews is Mike Bloomberg's daughter who is a um, – I believe she's an Olympic equestrian or she's a competitive equestrian. But she competes – with a horse through a whole bunch of, uh, I want to say it's dressage, but I could be wrong. Either way, she talks about sports competition. And one of the points she makes is that she has a lot of money so she can have a horse and she has access to the club and she has access to do all of the training. But if she wasn't good at it, she wouldn't continue to succeed. She actually has to build on her own talent and merit, even though this is a sport of very wealthy people. Her skill is what matters most. If she sucked at it, she wouldn't get anywhere. The other person who's really interesting in that documentary is, in, I think it's Ivanka Trump is the daughter. Ivana was the wife. Ivanka. Ivanka Trump, who's Donald Trump's daughter. She is a very brief interview and she's standing on top of one of her dad's buildings. But one of the things that she says is that she looks at the skyline in New York and wonders which piece of the skyline is going to be hers. Which thing is she going to build? And that's kind of a powerful image if you think about it because Donald Trump owns buildings all over the world. He, he can look at a piece of skyline and be like, that's mine, that's mine, and that's mine, and I own that too. So she wants to look at the skyline and say, okay, which piece is mine because I built it, not which piece is mine because I inherited it. She wants to create something in and of her own. Her landscape, her, her basis of establishing her wealth is, is skyscrapers. You know, it's, it's not like you inherit or you have a piece of your father's or your mother's business and, you know, which, which accounts are yours. She's looking at an entire city and saying, which buildings are going to be mine? The other thing that's interesting about Ivanka Trump is that she is very, very fashionable and she has her own line of purses and shoes and accessories, but I think the ma the main things I've seen are the shoes and the handbags. Although I think there are other things that you can buy. My understanding is that she has a good deal of input into what they look like, and they look really good. Like they look like high end pieces, and you can compare them to um, like a, a handbag from her line compares favorably to a handbag from a really upscale line of handbags because of the way that she incorporates detail. And there's, you know, her name's not hosed all over the place in 72 point font either. It's not like you can tell from across the street, oh, that's an Ivanka Trump bag because I can read it over here without my glasses on. Her ability to translate what looks like wealth into an affordable scale is part of what makes her line very successful because it looks like stuff that is very high end, but the prices are not that high. If you... If you're the son or daughter of a millionaire or a billionaire, and we're, we're mostly talking about billionaires here, it's a really – and I don't mean to sound like overly pitying, but that's a really tough way to grow up because you have to figure out who you are beyond being so-and-so's kid. And you also have to figure out what are you going to do that is unique and autonomous beyond – 
well, when I come of age, I get a big pot of money. I mean, that, that you have to. There, there's a there's an enormous amount of pressure that that, that is especially in this documentary. That if you watch it, um, I think the kid's name is Jamie Johnson who did it. He, he seems to be sort of like, well, how come we don't own this company anymore? It's publicly traded, and I have to pay for my Johnson and Johnson's bandage band aids. Whereas the other people that he interviews are like, okay, I'm going to do something that's going to be just me that I achieved, even though I have all of these things that I'm going to live in and inherit. And I have this incredible amount of wealth. There's going to be something that I do that is just me. That is my contribution. And seeing how they define it is really fascinating, but also makes for a very powerful character in a book. I think that authors can do just to get the accoutrements right. Like Lori Foster had a book I think When You Dare or something like that. And her author was supposed to be very wealthy. She had, I kind of thought she was like Janet Ivanovich or something because she, her books were made into movies and she was um, wealthy enough that she flew charter jets and um, she was the subject of a kidnapping and she thought it was a ransom attempt. So obviously she had quite a bit of money. When it came to talking about how much money the author had in the book, she described living in this very modest apartment, had no security whatsoever. She had posters on the walls uh, that decorated her apartment. And um, she drove, she splurged uh, and spent her last royalty check on a Mazda Miata. No way. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but if you're portraying your author as a multimillionaire, a, she's not going to live in an apartment with no security. Or even a I, doorman, yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't really understand why she has posters decorating her walls. And, um, you know, you, your royalty check, if you're a multimillionaire and you're only getting uh, enough money to pay for a Mazda Miata, then you're really not as successful as you're putting yourself out there. That's kind of hysterical. Do they even make the Mazda Miata anymore? I don't know. The book was published a, a year or so ago, so maybe they did at the time she was writing it. Is this the one where the um, where the where the evil reviewer is the bad guy? Yes. Yes, that one. Okay, I didn't read it. I just heard all about it. All about it. We were talking about the wealth fantasy last time. We were talking about you got tired of the billionaire fantasy. Yes, thank you. Yes, we were talking about how tired I was of the billionaire fantasy. And I think part of my exhaustion comes from having worked in the job that I had. It's just not all that fascinating to me. It sort of reminds me of my job, <laughs> which, which I don't do anymore. There, there are a lot of really amazing things that, that you can do when you have that much wealth that giving away huge chunks of it doesn't hurt. That is an enormously wonderfully powerful and excellent position to be in. And so one thing that I've noticed is sort of absent is the degree to which philanthropy plays a part when you have a lot of, when you have a lot of money in the romance novels. And I'm not sure if that's because naming specific philanthropic uh, efforts can politicize the book in such a way that might alienate readers. And so the references are as bland as possible, but there's always going to be sheiks who want to improve the technological infrastructure and the education of the people in their country. And there's always going to want to be efforts for education and you know clean water and food. Those are all things that everyone can agree are important. But the degree to which having a great deal of money can make you an enormously powerful philanthropist is underexplored. And I can see why. <laughs> so how are you liking the Julie James book? 
Oh, I finished it. I thought it was one of her better books. And I, I, I come from a, um, from this perspective. I really dislike lawyer heroes because I work with so many of them and I just can't see them as heroic. That may any. be why I dislike billionaire books because I used to work yeah. with so many and it, they're not admirable. Many of them, some of them are. So, um, admirable. but this actually worked for me. So I feel like the, she did a really good job of balancing the male and female components of the story. It was one of her sexiest stories yet. So I was really pleased. And I, I think uh, I think people will really enjoy it. Everyone is doing their, their books that were awesome this year, which is really kind of horrible because then I want to buy them all. What are you looking forward to next year? Do you have any ideas of what you want to read next year? Oh, yeah. There's this secret Nalini Singh book. A secret Nalini Singh book? Are we allowed to talk about it? Well, I don't know anything about it. There, um, I'm presuming because of the secrecy surrounding it, and by secrecy they won't put the blurb or the cover in the catalog. They're just calling it Untitled Psy Changeling Number 13. I think that's what they're calling it. I saw that listing somewhere, yes. And um, I've heard that there's not going to be any advanced reader copies and that there's... Uh, lockdown on the story. So I assume that it's the story of ghost. Yeah, it's got to be the ghost book. And uh, I've written out my thesis as to why I believe the ghost (laughs) is Caleb. And I told, remember when we did the podcast interview with Nalini, I told her that if it wasn't Caleb, she was going to have to write me a brief in response (laughs) to point out how it was not Caleb and it was um, this other person. (laughs) Yes, that was one of the more fun podcasts. If I had to look back on the years of po- of the years worth of podcasts, which ones I like the best, I think I like the one where you cross examine Nalini Singh because that was excellent. <laughs> Poor girl, so many attorneys and former former attorneys running around romance land. I feel a little left out. But you're married to one, so yeah, it's- I am. It, it, I'm- I have spousal privileges. I can talk about law. Of course, my husband is a municipal finance attorney. So, you know, if you want to talk about bonds, I can tell you all about them, but they're not very exciting. However, whenever he puts on a suit with cufflinks, he does have the ability to say bond, municipal bond. Do you know when the uh, mysterious Nalini Singh book is supposed to come out? It's June 2nd or something like that. So maybe if you and I go to New Zealand, we can uh, steal into her home and burgle her. June 4th, I think, is the date, the release date. So let's go, let's go burgle Nalini's home. We'll bring her, we'll, we'll fill her ice trays and leave her some Nutella and some Marmite, and we can just go and uh, steal her computer and get an early look. All right. Well, you could go now. I've heard it's uh, done. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Some books you're looking forward to. There is a book coming out in April by Lauren Willig that I'm really looking forward to. It is a historical, but it's partially set in Africa. And I think the tagline that I met with, that I read was something about Downton Abbey meets out of Africa. I totally want to read that. I'm looking forward to this because when I went on vacation at the end of the summer this year, I took Lauren Willig's Carnation series with me, which I hadn't read. And I read about four or five of them in a week. And I really like her writing style. I really like her sense of humor. So if, you know, if if her name is on the front, I want to see what it is. It is, uh, it's a standalone and it's called Ashford Park. Um, It is about two 
cousins and it starts in England in the 1910s and then goes through the 1920s in Kenya. It's also, it, it has the, um, the same sort of, I believe the same setup as the Carnation series where there's a modern character and a historical character and you're following both of them. But this is a standalone apart from the Carnation series. And I totally want to read this. I am, a I'm very excited about that one, mostly because it sounds so different from what I've read that my, when I read the, the, the Downton Abbey meets out of Africa, my brain went, Oh really? That's, Oh yes. Let's go eat that. Let's do that. That sounds really interesting. Um, I'm experiencing a bit of, I I call it romance fatigue where it's, it's taking a lot for something to jump out at me and go, Hey, look, this looks great. So that, that is what I'm very excited about. I think that comes out in April of this year, of this coming year. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. The music that you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and you can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is by a group called Three Mile Stone, and it's called Snug in the Blanket. I hope you guys are snug in a blanket reading good books, because most of us, or many of us anyway, are probably on vacation, or at least having very quick commutes, because no one else is working. Harlequin has some things that they would like to tell you. Book lovers are fun to shop for. Your first stop for Christmas shopping or after Christmas shopping can be choosing the best books for anyone on your list. Visit harlequin.com slash Christmas gift shop. And that noise you just heard was one of my dogs who cannot miss an opportunity to be part of the podcast. If you're really lucky, I'll start digging a hole in the carpet in a minute. Woohoo! I want to thank you for being part of the podcast, for listening, and for emailing and calling us. We both really love doing the podcast, but it's even more fun when people email or call or even tweet at us to tell us what they thought of the latest episode. I'm really glad that you're listening and that you enjoy romance as much as we do. And wherever you are, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, and we wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>